0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 25th live episode of the Ask Abhijit Show and the Abhijit Chavda podcast. So today we discuss geopolitics and world history. And as usual, we have a wonderful bunch of questions that we've lined up. But before I begin, I need to thank you all. So the Abhijit Chavda podcast has now broken into the top 100 list in India in Spotify. It's uh, Yesterday it was on 98. Today it's in the 88th position. So I need to thank you all. Thank you very much for making this happen. Uh, we are crossing some very interesting milestones. So it's great. So thank you once again. Thank you, everyone. And now let's begin with the podcast, with this session. And let's start with question number one. So Yatinendra asks, After World War II, the powerful nations took a step towards global peace by establishing the United Nations. But is it really doing any good to us at the moment when we can clearly see some nations using dirty tactics to achieve their goals, causing human suffering and global chaos? How can it be strengthened further? I assume you mean the United Nations. Thank you. Yes, so after the Second World War, the United Nations was established. And uh, this is a hierarchical organization. It has a UN Security Council in which you have five permanent members. So this organization was set up to consolidate the power that the winning side had acquired after the Second World War. The aim of this organization is to ensure global order, a rules-based system, global peace, etc. But on the terms, of the winners of the second world war. So it, the so ostensibly the, the the role of the United Nations is to uh maintain global peace and global order, etc. But its real purpose is to entrench the winning side of the second world war, world war in power. And that's why you have see we we can see that there has been absolutely no reforms in the UN over the past 70 years after the World War II ended, right? I mean, the UN Security Council has certain member states that are basically lightweights today. They don't deserve to be uh, on the permanent membership of the Security Council, and they still hold their veto power. So this all reflects the global order as it was in 1945. This is basically obsolete, but the the countries that have the power, they are trying to hang on to that. And they are opposing any... uh, reform or any proposal to reform the UN Security Council or the United Nations now it's interesting that India was offered a permanent uh, position on the UN Security Council twice in 1950 and 1955 and uh, our Prime Minister uh, Mr Nehru rejected both these offers and insisted that China be given the position instead and today China is the is in power I mean it's it's on the permanent uh It's a permanent member on the UN Security Council. It has the power of veto, and it is preventing India from ever becoming a permanent member there. So basically, the role of the UN is, well, it is to entrench the interests in the the positions of the five countries, the five uh, winning powers after Second World War. That is the real intention. See, whenever you have a multilateral organization, It essentially has one agenda, and that agenda is decided by the most powerful nation or small group of nations in this organization. And you see this everywhere. You see it in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. You see it in BRICS. You see it in NATO. You see it in G7, G8, whatever it is, G20, etc. And you see it in the UN, the WHO, UNESCO, etc., all these organizations have a stated purpose, but they also have a certain agenda that is that of the most powerful nation in the organization. So that's what it is today. Now, today you can see that the Chinese have infiltrated deep into the UN and they're controlling vital uh, bureaucratic positions, etc. Bureaucratic positions look like they are they seem very boring and mundane, but they are the ones that basically decide the rules and, and all the... Uh, the policies, et cetera, of the the organization. So the Chinese have steadily over the last two or three decades infiltrated deep into the UN and now they occupy positions of power everywhere. India has never had this ambition and that's why India is basically left behind as of today. So the main purpose of the UN is to further the agenda of the most powerful nations in the UN. That's the thing about any organization. So that's what you see right now. The UN basically... uh, it doesn't it it doesn't have any any power to enforce any rules because you see the u the united states basically flouts un resolutions and un uh, views from time to time and so does china so these resolutions are non binding they don't really the un doesn't really have the power to enforce any of these things and that's why you see nations using a variety of tactics like you said dirty tactics etc to achieve their goals And it does cause human suffering, global chaos. I mean, we don't have a great deal of global chaos, but there's a great deal of human suffering that is being uh, that is being caused by the vested interests and agendas of certain powerful nations. You see that all the time. So the UN basically needs a great deal of reforms. It needs to be reformed if it is to really have any real legitimacy in the eyes of the world. it serves is very different from what was its original stated purpose that's why it is important that this organization be reformed but as we know the entrenched powers the five entrenched powers will not allow that to happen so so it's an interesting phase we are in right now that Ch- the Chinese are emerging the U.S is waning to to some extent so the U.S uh, the, the UN sorry is now slowly becoming in age in uh, an instrument of the Chinese in furthering their global ambitions. So that's what we see today. Harsh asks, what type of lifting technology did ancient civilizations use for all these megalithic structures such as pyramids, temples and astronomical observatories which are all made with huge granite and basalt rocks with millimeter precision not to mention the painstaking and beautiful carvings that we have never been able to recreate with the same materials. It's a very good question. So the carvings and all, that we can understand. It's, it's definitely possible to uh, for the human ingenuity ingenuity and skills to create beautiful and painstaking carvings, even on a very large scale. The real question is, how do you... Move enormous blocks of granite, maybe several tons, tens, twen- tens of tons, maybe hundreds of tons. You have the great temple at Baalbek, the the ancient Roman temple, which probably was a pre-Roman temple as well. And you have one block of is it granite? It's a it's one block of rock there, which weighs over a hundred tons. It's almost impossible to move that even today with modern technology. So how did the ancients of that region move such enormous uh, rocks, such enormous blocks of granite or or any kind of rock? And we don't see any evidence of how they have moved it. And again, in the pyramids, these are enormous, gigantic, monumental structures. And and each block that these pyramids are made of, these are very, very large blocks. They weigh a lot. And the only conceivable way these Egyptians would have constructed the pyramids was by, was by constructing ramps of, uh, on a very large scale so that you could move the blocks uh, along these ramps. But you don't see any evidence of these ramps because such ramps themselves would be monumental structures. So it's a big mystery. There are many such places where you have monumental architecture, enormous uh, blocks made out of rock and there's no evidence of how these blocks were moved. So that is one of the enduring mysteries of history. We do not have an answer as of today. Now, some people go into this, uh, what's it called? The the, the theory that aliens helped us to do this. Well, if you have such a theory, you need to present some sort of evidence. As of today, there is zero evidence of any alien involvement. So without evidence, a theory is just a hypothesis. does not need to be taken the- seriously. If you have a theory that doesn't provide any evidence, then you can dismiss that theory without any evidence. That's how it works. So uh, forgetting, uh, let's forget about the alien angle, the alleged alien angle. There's no such thing. There's no evidence for that. But even if we discount that, there is. this is a big mystery because even today, it's extremely difficult with modern 21st century technology and machines and all that to move such enormous rocks. So this is an interesting question you bring up, Harsh. As of today, we do not have an answer. No historian, no archaeologist has been able to satisfactorily answer the question as to how these enormous blocks of rock were moved and placed into position with such incredible precision. There's not even a gap of a millimeter, like you say. Yes, it is true. So this is an enduring mystery. Shubham asks, Do you think that religion acts as a barrier in developing a nation? As we see, most of the countries with atheist majority or good percentage of people who follow no religion, uh, such countries are developed or fast growing. For example, China, Scandinavian countries and other European nations. What is your take in this, sir? So if you look at the history of Europe and the history of the Scandinavian nations, these nations have until recently been, been very much Christian, right? So therefore, you cannot say that because of atheism, that's the, that atheism is propelling the growth of these nations. These nations, until very, very recently, have been Christian majority nations. China has always been a Confucian, Taoist, Buddhist nation, right? Now, you are right. China has developed a lot over the past century, ever since the communists came into place. That is true. But my point is that, It all depends on the kind of religion you're talking about. You cannot categorize all religions under the same blanket. All religions are not the same, sir. Please understand this. Please repeat this after me. All all religions are not the same. And for example, the Dharmic religions are not even religions because they don't have one God and one prophet and one book. Right? So, If you take the Dharmic religions, for example, let's take the example of Japan. Japan is a Dharmic nation. They are very proud of their Buddhist and and, uh, Shinto heritage. This is a polytheistic culture and this is a very traditional culture. Japan is very proud of its polytheistic and and, uh, ancient roots and Japan has never abandoned its culture, its religions. It's mix, It's very beautiful syncretic mix of religions, Shintoism and Buddhism, right? Most Japanese practice some form of religion. Very few are atheists. And yet Japan is the most technologically advanced nation in the world. And the reason people are so drawn to Japan is because of this incredible mixture of tradition and modernity, right? So Japan is a shining example of how you can be the most technologically advanced nation in the world and yet be very proud of your culture and your religion and of your religious roots and you keep practicing that right so japan is an example of what india can become so i disagree with uh, the notion that many people have that religion is a barrier towards developing a nation religion is a barrier depending on which religion it is for example if you look at the dark ages of europe ask yourselves what caused this da- these dark ages why were why was knowledge banned why was any form of science banned why was questioning the uh, the prevailing dogma banned who did this there's only one authority which did this and that is the catholic church that is why europe was so deep into superstition and and uh, and it was so backward during the medieval ages, the dark ages, etc. All the ancient knowledge, the pre-Christian Europeans had, all the ancient Europe- Indo-European culture and, and uh, wisdom and the knowledge of, basically it was Ayurveda, the herbal knowledge and all that. And the astronomical knowledge, all of that was destroyed. It was wiped out. All the books were burned. All the people who practiced this were murdered in, in great numbers. There were crusades within Europe itself. Aimed at stamping out every trace of the pre-pre-Christian culture and science and knowledge in Europe, yeah, and uh, you had these horrific inquisitions and witch hunts that that basically the only aim was to uh, secure the supremacy of the Catholic Church all across Europe. So that is an example of a religion acting as a barrier in developing a, a, a people. Or any country. So that's a shining example of that. Now, in the case of uh, Dharmic religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever you call them, Jainism, etc., if you look at ancient India, India, ancient India was always the most scientifically and technologically advanced civilization of its time. Whether it's the Harappan phase, the pre-Harappan phase, the post-Harappan phase, the Mauryan phase, the Gupta phase. Basically, everything that happened before the past 1,000 years, India was always at the forefront of science, technology, and knowledge. Mathematics, everything. India developed all the sciences, all the mathematics, the the calculus, everything, trigonometry, astronomy, pharmacology, toxicology, everything that you can imagine. That you can imagine, which basically is the foundation that was that gave rise to modern science. The contributions of India are completely unacknowledged, which is a different story. But here is an example of, if you call Hinduism a religion, then this has fostered this development of science and technology. And therefore, I need to strongly put this point across, that it all depends on the kind of religion we are dealing with. All religions are not the same. Dharma is not, I mean, certain religions are not even Dharma, basically, okay? Dharma is only what is the four so-called religions that come under the dharmic category, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and Jainism. Everything else is, technically, it is a Dharma. Understand that, please. All right, so Dharma only means these four uh, broad categories. Everything else is not Dharma. It is essentially a Dharma. So every religion is not the same. Certain religions are a significant impediment in the development of a country and a people. And certain religions actually actively promote that. So you can see the example of ancient India. You can see the example of Japan today, which is way more advanced than China or the Scandinavian countries, right? So I hope this answers this question, which is a very good question. Akash asks, why did the French Revolution stabilize France and made it prosper and make it prosper but on the other hand Russia after the Russian Revolution started starving and killing its own people and finally crumbled in the 1990s so am I right in saying that France prospered after the French Revolution which is an interesting thing so the French Revolution well revolutions are violent affairs and revolutions most often, Uh, do more harm than good. So what was the aim of the French Revolution? Liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, and fraternity. And they threw in laïcité, which means secularism, right? Liberty, equality, fraternity, and secularism. So yes, the aim of the French Revolution was to overthrow the monarchy. They did succeed in doing that in a very bloody manner and lots of collateral damage, lots of violence, lots of unnecessary deaths and all that you had in the French Revolution. It was a period of great chaos. Whatever geopolitical gains the French uh, had done, had made over the past centuries were all frittered away because of this disastrous uh, turmoil within France. And then what happened? Within a very short period of time, Monsieur Napoleon Bonaparte, Mr. Napoleon, he convinced the French people that the only way to take forward the gains of the French Revolution and the ideals and the principles of the French Revolution was to crown him the Emperor of France. Isn't that funny? (laughs) That's the kind of audacity this man had. So, in a very short period of time, you had a return to monarchy. Of course, Napoleon was a secularist. He did uh, uh, reform uh, the, the, the system of governance thoroughly, completely, totally overhauled it. The system that France uses today for governance is basically the Napoleonic code. And the constitution also is very, Napoleon's constitution was also very influential. So yes, there was a great change in France. And France was able to uh, to to continue developing as a nation after the revolution. But it was a very big uh, period of turmoil and chaos. Now, if you look at the Russian revolution, uh, it was in 1917, yeah, 1718 thereabouts. So the Russian Revolution also aimed at it had the same it had the same aim as the French Revolution to overthrow the monarchy, the tsars, right? And that's what they achieved. And it was all about uh, empowering the 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 proletariat, overthrowing the bourgeoisie, and uh, having a people's revolution and a people's uh, dictatorship, etc. Which they were able to achieve. So once again, you had uh, the The royals were massacred. They were all shot. And the old system was thrown out. And then you had the Soviet Politburo that took over and uh, and embarked upon this imperialistic uh, process. And so what what was the end result of this? You had a very small number of people, the Politburo, who who came to power and who basically ruled this vast nation, right? So you can call it whatever you want. We can call it the dictatorship of the proletariat, or you could call it the People's Republic or the United, the USSR Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. but it was again a very small number of people, a small clique, a small gang of people, a small cabal who had all the power. So how is it different from a monarchy? So once again you had a re- so the thing is this: you can never have absolute equality in any human society. If you have an ordered society, you have a hierarchy. So it always gives rise to another hierarchy. (laughs) That's what happens. These revolutions and all, they always give rise to another hierarchy and another consolidation of power with the people having having most of the power. Now, Russia also developed a lot. After the, the Russian Revolution, it became a superpower. I mean, come on. Uh, did they starve and kill their own people? Yes, Mr. Stalin did kill a lot of people via artificial famines. But after Stalin, you had, I mean, the situation was better. Of course, it was the entire country was ruled with an iron hand for sure. But you know what? It's the same everywhere. You you are in in, in democratic systems, you are made to think that you have the right to vote, etc. But everything is controlled anyway right so yes the soviet system did crumble in the 1990s and then you have a return to the to the uh, uh to the monarchy of of sorts mr putin is the new tsar you could say he calls him i mean mr xi jinping is the new emperor right you can call it by call this position by whatever name you want but it's a return to the same system so revolutions are a violent chaotic process they have some some good results, some good outcomes, some bad outcomes. I think overall, the French overall prospered more, I would say, than the Russians. Russia has always been a hard land. And the history of Russia, if you look at the past 1,000 years, it's always been a history of hardships. So it is. So whatever happened after the Russian Revolution is essentially part of the same pattern that Russia is a hard, hard land to live in. The story of Russia is one of hardships. So every nation has a certain character, the Russian character is that it's the, it's a land of hardships, it's a land of sorrows, and it's a land of hard people, people who drink vodka, who are stoic, and who carry on no matter what happens. So that's the character of Russia. And that's what you see there. And the French have a very different character. And that's what you see there as well. So that is a small brief comparison. I mean, these, these are vast topics. You can spend 10 years studying the Russian Revolution and the French Revolution. I've just just given a very brief overview. So that's a small brief comparison of these two events. Sitan Gopa asks, does Tibet count in the core of the India-China relationship or part of the India-China relationship? Uh, Which is the way forward for the Tibetan issue in the India-China relationship in my perspective? Well, whether it is acknowledged or not, Tibet is always there. Tibet is the central issue in the India-China relationship. India and China have never been neighbors in the past two and a half thousand years, ever since China was born. China was born about two and a half thousand years ago as a civilization or a nation or a culture. And India and China have never been neighbors until the Chinese annexation of Tibet, the illegal Chinese annexation occupation of Tibet in 1955 at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. And that is the first time that India and China have become neighbors of sorts. And that's the first time India and China have entered into a conflict. So the key to resolving this from our perspective, from the Indian perspective and from the Tibetan perspective is freedom for Tibet. Tibet needs to be restored to freedom. And the Chinese know this. The Chinese know that the, the Tibet issue is the core of the India-China problem, even though India and China never speak about it. China keeps talking about the one China policy and India doesn't really comment about it. But the core issue and the key to resolving the problem is Tibet. So India needs to have a more proactive, more more long-term, India needs to have proper long-term vision for how it wants to resolve this matter. India needs to resolve this. in a matter in a manner that is advantageous to India as well as to the people of Tibet, and the Tibetans also need to take certain steps. For example, you have the Tibetan government in exile, and you have His Holiness, Holiness the Dalai Lama, who lives in Dharamshala. Now, Mister the the His Holiness the Dalai Lama needs to uh, basically announce what is his plan for reincarnation. See, the process is that when the Dalai Lama Passes on when he dies, he is reincarnated somewhere in Tibet. And there are certain signs that the Lamas have to look for, and then they they travel all across Tibet and then until they find a newborn child or a child who was born after the passing of the previous Dalai Lama, who exhibits certain signs and certain auspicious omens, etc. And then that child is taken as the next Dalai Lama. He is tutored in the ways of Buddhism and culture and all that, and eventually this child becomes the next Dalai Lama. So that is what His Holiness, the present, the current Dalai Lama underwent as a child. So now, whether we like it or not, His Holiness is very old now. He must be in his 80s now. So it's it may be a question of another, another 20 years, 20, 25, 30 years if he lives long. I wish he does. But in the next two, three decades, he will unfortunately pass on and he needs to announce his plans for his reincarnation he needs to announce whether he will be reincarnated in whether he will be reincarnated in tibet or whether he will be reincarnated in india or somewhere else within the tibetan community because the chinese plan to hijack the office of the dalai lama and appoint their own dalai lama so if his holiness the dalai lama announces that he will not be reincarnated in tibet he will be reincarnated reincarnated either in India or somewhere else, then the Chinese claim to the legitimacy of their appointee as the Dalai Lama will evaporate. So this is one step that we need to do. We need to take the Indian government and the Dalai Lama need to work together on this. And there needs to be a statement because we cannot allow the Chinese to hijack this most sacred office and we, this is currently the highest position in the buddhist world and one of the highest positions in, in the entire dharmic world so we cannot allow the chinese communist party to hijack this very ancient tradition so that's one thing that's ne- that needs to be done and secondly india needs to find a long term india needs to have a long term vision and a long term plan over the next 20 30 years in which tibet can be freed from the clause of the Chinese Communist Party, because the key to, to a lot of things, the key to, to security, st- stability, prosperity, and peace on India's northern boundary is the freedom of Tibet. If Tibet becomes free, then all the issues go away, and we will even have a land route to, to northern Asia and to, to the to the west through Tibet, etc. So these are things that are very important to India's long-term national security and to India's long-term future. And the Tibetans are our own people. Ethnically, they may be different, but they are part of our own culture. They are very close to us culturally, right? They are part of the uh, Indo-sphere, you could say. We've always had the best of relations, relationship with, with the Tibetan people for centuries, for almost 2000 years, ever since Tibet uh, came into being in any way. So that's what needs to be done. India needs to take this very seriously. India needs to have a long-term Uh, vision and plan for this. For that, you need political continuity in India. India's democracy, unfortunately, is such that there is no political continuity. If the result of the next election is is different and some other party comes to power, then they will reverse all the policies that are currently being implemented by the current uh, governing party. So that is India's major problem. India lacks political stability and India's some of India's political parties are outright anti-national and they are basically in the pockets and on on the payroll of outside forces so that is these are the issues these are the challenges that India needs to mitigate soon soon I mean urgently something needs to happen about this something needs to be done the national interest has to supersede any constitution, any federalism, any democracy, any laws that were passed 70 years ago. It doesn't matter what the constitution says. The constitution is a man-made thing. The geography of India, Bharatvarsh, is a God-gifted thing. So we need to put that above any constitution, any laws, any rules, any such thing. India needs to put its national interest, its long-term national interest at the forefront. Change the constitution if you need to bring in a new constitution if you need to it doesn't matter the national interest and the civilizational interest has to be paramount so india needs to india needs a leader or leaders who have the fortitude to do this that's what india awaits all right next question will the future chinese currency be used can the future chinese i mean can the chinese currency the yuan be used as a medium of exchange in the future for global trade instead of dollars are current are the countries that are currently suffering from us sanctions looking for an alternative currency for their international trade good question very good question it's all about these uh, these networks of power and and the currency the uh, the currency thing is a very important part of this. So the global currency is, is, as of today, the US dollar. And that is what gives the United States so much leverage, leverage globally. That is one of the things that underpins its status as a superpower. But the US dollar is accepted without question worldwide. Even in places like North Korea, This they do value US dollars. Even the Chinese have enormous reserves of the US dollar, right? So yes, this is one of the problems that, that many countries face when they come under US sanctions. The fact that the US dollar is the uh, global currency or de facto global currency it works against them. So they do seek an alternative. The Russians in the past tried to make, tried to do that with the ruble. Today, the Chinese are trying to uh, bring the Yuan to that status. Uh, Via various organizations and and instruments such as the the BRICS Bank and 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 other such things, so yes, there is currently this tussle going on. Even the EU wants the euro to become one of the major currencies. It is one of the major currencies, but uh, no, none of these currencies the, has the status of the of the US dollar. So as long as the US dollar is the de facto global currency, the US can run its writ throughout the world. So that is what the Chinese want to push back against. They are working very hard, very assiduously, 24 by 7, to in the direction of making the Chinese Yuan uh, come near the status, attain the status of a global currency. So yes, and the other thing is cryptocurrency. So that's also one of the new things. And the Chinese are cracking down on, on cryptocurrency. They are not happy about the emergence of the cryptocurrency, such as the uh, such as Bitcoin, etc. Because it... Uh, basically hinders their plan to make their currency the new, the future global currency. So there is this very interesting tussle going on right now. Very interesting. How did uh, the Viking Age suddenly stop? And how did they change Europe and the world? That's a good question. So the Viking Age was basically from the end of the 8th century to the middle or the end of the 11th century. So that's how it was. It's about 300 years or so. That that is considered to be the Viking Age. And so so who were the Vikings? The Vikings were the people of Scandinavia. Let me show you what it means. Here's the map. So let's go westwards. So the Scandinavian countries are Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and to some extent, Finland. So the Vikings were the Danes, the Norwegians, and the Swedes. They are basically one people, one culture, one ethnicity. So these guys were mostly farmers and they would engage in fishing expeditions and some small raiding ex- expeditions to other lands. But in the late 9th late, uh, century onwards, late 8th century onwards, they began to uh, embark upon these raiding expeditions in in great force. And very soon they overran much of the much of the island of the, uh, the present day United Kingdom, etc. Especially the northern part, and they had a great deal of influence in other parts of the world as well. Their influence stretched all the way to Constantinople, present day Turkey, and they traded everywhere. They they controlled various trade routes, various various uh, river trade routes, etc. And all that, right? So that is the Viking Age. That is what is known as the Viking Age. They were great conquerors. They conquered most of England and all. And they were basically polytheists. They were adherents of the old Indo-European culture. If you look at the pantheon of their gods, it is the same as the Vedic pantheon with different names. Their greatest god, Thor, is essentially Indra. So that is what the Vikings were. What ended the Viking Age? Very simple. It is the Christianization of the Vikings that ended the Viking Age. The Christianization of the Vikings meant that they accepted the, the supremacy of the Catholic Church, not just in religious matters, but also in political matters. And once they became Christians, they lost the will to fight. They lost their that inner fire, etc. And they became one of the many Christian states that you will find across europe so basically in very short to answer your question it is the christianization of the scandinavian countries that ended the viking age okay there are two questions about sport is performance in sports a good measure of how ambitious a country is that's asked by ashwatthama the second question is by Pritham. Does sports play any role in making a country powerful or well-known? Yes. There are a few things about sports. First of all, the uh, a nation's sporting prowess is a very good indicator of its overall development. So you will find that countries with high living standards and high... Uh, High levels of development, they always do well in sports. And the reason is that when people have excess money, they have good lives, uh, they have good living standards and a good lifestyle, then they can spend time and energy on leisure, and on non earning activities. And sports is a prime example of that. So if you if you're only uh, if you if the only thing you're engaged in in life is to make sure you don't starve then you have to only think of that and you don't have the time or the money or the energy or the nutrition to engage in sports and that's what you have seen for decades in india and secondly if the government system is such that if it is a if it, if it basically deprives the people of various things then again you will say that sports suffers so that's why sports is a very good indicator of the health of a country of the per capita GDP of a country, of the overall living standards and the overall levels of development of a country, it also is an indicator of how ambitious a country is. Because you see that these, these socialist and Marxist and communist countries in the nineteen in the twentieth century, where the USSR, East Germany, and the Soviet bloc republics, Eastern Europe, they all spent millions or billions of dollars in. Uh, in creating a world-class a world-class sporting system and infrastructure, and they, it was imperative for them to be the number one uh, country in the Olympics, especially for the USSR. And they basically they broke the rules for that. They they indulged in doping and drugs, and it ruined many the lives of many athletes. But it did not matter. It was national pride above everything else. So it is an indicator of how ambitious a country is. And the thing about sports is that it unifies a country. It brings everyone together. Sporting success always raises the morale of a country and the overall confidence levels of a country. And that is why it tells you a lot about the various uh, Nehruvian and post-Nehruvian regimes in India that they did not ever care about sports because they had no interest in raising the morale or or the confidence or the living standards of the country. But you will see that over the past 20 years, India has started doing well in sports slowly, gradually, right? India was the worst performing country of all time in the Olympics. But now every time you get more and more medals, you even get uh, gold medals once in a while, which was unheard of in the past. So this is an indicator of the rising standards, slowly rising standards, living standards, etc. and and prosperity levels in India. The, the government is still doing nothing for it. I mean, maybe the past, maybe the current government has invested a little bit in sports, but India's sporting organizations are still extraordinarily corrupt. You look at hockey, look at football. I mean, just two examples at random. So, yes, sports is very important for a country. It increases a country's prestige, it increases a country the population's overall confidence and, and sense of pride in being whoever you are, being Indian, etc. So, yes, it is a very good indicator, and it is important that governments should spend a a good amount of money in developing sports. And sports develop the, the sporting prowess or the sporting ability of a country develops automatically once the living standards rise. So it is a very good indicator of the overall health and condition of any country. So this is a very good question, sir. Akash asks... The Battle of Thermopylae has been very popular since the movie 300, where it was shown that all the Spartan soldiers were exceptional fighters and that they were the best warriors the world has ever seen. They were the only Greek state that stood against Xerxes, etc. Contrary to this, I read something totally opposite. What's the truth about this battle and the Spartan society overall? Look, uh, the Western world, especially Hollywood and the Americans, they have been obsessed with Sparta for quite some time. Basically, the, the Western world considers Greece and Rome to be the birthplace of Western civilization, along with, to some extent, Babylon and the Middle East because of the Semitic religions and to some extent, Egypt as well. But mainly, it's it's uh, Greece and Rome. If you look at the American Express, the logo of American Express, the erstwhile long term logo it's it's that of a roman centurion or of a greek hoplite soldier right spartan hoplite soldier so yes they've been obsessed with this and they have see the movie i haven't seen the i i think i saw the movie 300 wasn't a great movie but uh, yeah it portrays the spartans as the ones who stood against the greeks which is not really true the it was not actually the actual uh, composition of the, of the war was 700 so there was an entire greek army that stood against this invading persian army that was commanded by their great emperor Kshayarsha, who is called as xerxes in the west his real name was Kshayarsha, it's a sanskrit name so Kshayarsha invaded greece uh, and uh, the greeks stood against that for some time and then you had a coalition of 700 soldiers it was a co- it was an alliance of greek city states that stood against the Greeks. So the main army was sent back to defend Greece and these 700 men stood and tried to uh, defend this pass, the hot passes, Thermopylae, against the invading Persians as long as they could in order to buy some time for their main, main army to organize the defense of the country. So it was essentially a suicide mission. Their intention was to die after defending as long as they could. So this was an alliance of Greek city-states. You had Sparta, yes. The king, Leonidas, was the commander or the leader of these 700 men. But you had Sparta, you had Arcadia, Corinth, Thebes, Mycenae, Locris, etc. So it was was a big alliance. And you had soldiers from all these various city-states. So it was not just Spartans. Historically, Spartans were basically very militaristic. But... They were known to retreat from a battle when it was not advantageous to them. So the mythology that has been built up around them is very misleading. They were good strategists. They would retreat and run from a battle if they needed to, if it was suitable for them strategically or tactically. Right? And and it's interesting that the Persian army also had a very cosmopolitan composition. You had... uh, Soldiers from Persia, of course, but you had soldiers from Media, from Ilam, from Gandhara, from India, as well as from Scythia. So that is also interesting because the at that time the Persian Empire did incorporate the westernmost past uh, regions or, or locations of India. So you had Gandharan and Indian soldiers too in the army of Chayarsha. So it was a very interesting event. It was, I think, this battle took place in uh, 480 BCE. And it is not 300, it is is seven, approximately 700 men. So it's something that you should all read about because the truth is very different from what has been portrayed in that movie. Fuad asks, what is your stand on the Muslim community of India? What should they do to be a good community for the country? Look, my stand on the Muslim community is very clear. They are our people, they are Indians. I am very clear about this. The Muslims of India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, Maldives, Afghanistan, we are all one people. We have the same ancestors. All the Muslims of this region have had the same ancestors as all the Hindus and other people for at least 10,000 years, if not 20, 30, 50,000 years. So we are the same people. The thing is that the, the culture and the religion has changed. So what should the Muslims do to be a good community for the country? Well, it's for the Muslims to decide who am I to say, who are we to say? The Muslims have to decide what is the best future path for them. It is true that there is a great deal of friction. It is true. I mean, see, that, which is ironic considering the fact that in 1857 hindus muslims six everyone lived together fought together and died together and bled together for the country for the defense of the motherland even during the azad hind forge era hindus muslims six everyone fought lived and bled together and died together for the country for the motherland for the motherland for the freedom of the motherland so it's it's unfortunate that uh, we have this friction today and these divisions because it is true that muslims and hindus live very separate uh, lives in india it's like parallel societies the muslims unfortunately seem to feel that they they their their allegiance is, is somewhere else some of them at least i would say many of them there is this attitude among muslims that we ruled over you for 800 years and all that i mean come on you're not foreigners you are equally, you are as much victims as as the Hindus were. I mean, your ancestors. And it's uh, the thing is that it's all politicized. After 1857, you had the British engineering these schisms in Indian society. And you had these Muslim organizations and Muslim scholars who were promoted by the British and by Mr. Mohandas Gandhi during the Caliphate movement, right? Khalafat movement, etc. So this gave rise to this so-called two-nation theory. It was all engineered by the British and then fortified by the Congress Party and the Muslim League and Mr. Jinnah and Mr. Gandhi, etc. And this has created this schism in India, divide and rule. And you can see the consequences of that even today. Uh, So that is the situation that we are in today. We have this uh, schism in society. It's like parallel societies. So it is for the Muslim people of India to decide what they want. What is the best uh, future for them? They are Indian citizens. They have the same rights as Indians. They are the sons and daughters of this land. It is for them. It it would be good for everyone to unite together, be Indians. You may practice whatever religion you want at home. But as, as citizens of India, we have to all be together. right? And this politicization of religion has to stop. Unfortunately, we find that Muslims have always been used as vote banks before independence, after independence as well, and it is for the Muslims to decide whether they want to be used like this or not. I mean, voting, voting on religious lines is it defeats the purpose of democracy. It is one of the great drawbacks in democracy that you can have people of one religion all voting in the block. For one political party. It doesn't matter what the political party actually actually intends for the country. So these are the challenges India is facing. These are the challenges the Muslims of India are facing. There is this, uh, the media creates these perceptions of, of Muslims being marginalized and all that, uh, which is absolutely untrue, right? So I would say, so my stand is very clear. The Muslims of the entire subcontinent are our brothers and sisters. They are the descendants of our own ancestors. They are our own people what is best for them they should decide who are who am i to say anything they should decide and they should think about the country what is best for the country i think that should be the guiding principle that's all ishan asks can we see an anti-west anti-nato alliance in the future in the form of russia china iran and pakistan alliance we are already seeing it and there's one more nation in the mix which is Turkey. Now, it's strange that Turkey is officially a member of the NATO alliance, and yet they are now disengaging from it and engaging in certain geopolitical moves that are very much anti-NATO. For example, they bought the Russian S-400 missile defense system, because of which the Americans cut them out of the the, uh, F-35 fighter jet project. So they are no longer allowed to buy that fighter jet. And, and they have clearly decided that acquiring this defense missile defense system is, is more beneficial to them than going into the F-35 program. So, yes, we are seeing the emer- emergence of this alliance. It's led by the Chinese and the Russians to some extent. And the Pakistanis are getting involved in this. The... Iranians, uh, they have recently signed this big agreement with the Chinese, a long-term strategic agreement with the Chinese, in which the Chinese will will invest, I think, 30-40 billion dollars or something like that in Iran over the next two, three decades. So Iran seems to be on its way towards becoming a satellite of China. Uh, Pakistan is getting is already a satellite of China. Pakistan is already a Chinese colony, right? Many Central Asian states are part of this. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization involves certain Central Asian states like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Uh, I'm not sure exactly which states are there, but many of these states are there, etc. So there is this geopolitical realignment that's happening. It's gathering pace in this decade. So we are already seeing this alliance emerge, this anti-NATO alliance emerge. So if you look at the geography of this if you look at the geography this is india so china is a member of this alliance it's the leader of this alliance russia is because of because of the anti-russian stance the strongly anti-russian stance of nato russia is also now part of this alliance most of these central asian states which are essentially part of the russian uh sphere of influence they are part of the anti-nato alliance to some extent at least Pakistan is very much now anti-NATO. Iran is anti-NATO. Afghanistan is soon going to fall into this anti-NATO bracket because it is going to be taken over by the Taliban. And I'll talk about that later. And you have Turkey. So you have this realignment happening. And as you can see, if Myanmar is being controlled by China, then even Myanmar is part of that. So India is essentially encircled on land by an anti-NATO, anti-US, anti-India alliance. And there is this string of pearls thing which is being built in the Indian Ocean region. So the Chinese aim to encircle India completely. That is what is being engineered right now. So yes, you are right. This is already happening. Saurabh asks, why Iran wants to kill Israel while Saudi Arabia and the UAE real Muslims have a soft corner towards Saudi Arabia, the Abraham Accord, etc. Um, Iranians are converted, ex-Parsis, ex zoroastrians Then why do they hate Israel more than the real originator of Islam? Okay, interesting question. See, it's not about religion at all. Religion is just a pretext. You're right, the Saudis, I mean... Arabia is where Islam was born. And if you look at the way the geopolitical moves that Saudi Arabia is playing today, it is getting closer to Israel. It no longer views Israel as a mortal adversary. The Abraham Accords have happened. UAE and Israel have now opened uh, official cordial diplomatic relations. And the Saudis are very much on the verge of also normalizing their ties with Israel. So, where does that leave Iran? And, and why is it so? That's the question. So why are the Saudis now very happy? Let's look at the geography. Here's Iran here. Here is the Arabian Peninsula. And here is this little country called Israel. So Egypt has long had reasonably good relationship with the Israelis. And now the most of the Sunni Islamic world is normalizing its relationship with Israel. But Iran is still hell-bent on destroying Israel. So what is the cause of this? That's a very good question. Very good question. It all has to do with the geopolitical ambition of Iran and the geopolitical ambition of Saudi Arabia. See, the Saudis have never had this expansionist uh, agenda. All the Saudis have ever wanted is to live in peace in Saudi Arabia, and enjoy the incredible profits that this oil business is bringing in for them. They have the highest, one of the highest living standards in the world. The Saudis don't do any work. They do go to offices and sit there and play solitaire. But there's no real work being done in Saudi Arabia, or in the entire Arabian Peninsula. All the real work is done by expatriates. By the, it used to be the Indians, now it is the Pakistanis and the the Bangladeshis, etc., who do all the manual work, etc. Nepalese too, and Filipinos. So the the Arabians don't do any work, right? They just enjoy the free money that that is flowing in from the sales of the oil. Now, Saudi Arabia is in, well, it's facing a crisis because the oil has been discovered in the United States. The U.S. has become the world's largest producer of oil. So the future flow of this unlimited cash is no longer guaranteed. That's why the Saudi Arabia, so the Saudis want to normalize relations, relations with the neighborhood and, and you know settle things down. The Iranians have a very different geopolitical agenda. The Iranians are an expansionist regime. The regime of the Ayatollahs, they basically want to bring back the Achaemenid Empire, the Persian Empire, the Hakshamanish Empire. they have an expansionist agenda. They see themselves as conquering the world one day. That's why they are hell-bent on acquiring nuclear weapons technology. That's why they are so active geopolitically way beyond their borders, right? India has absolutely no influence outside its borders. The Iranians have far more influence beyond their borders than India can ever have as of today, or India is willing to have today. So the Iranians have been very vigorous and active geopolitical players for a very long time. They have a much greater appetite for risk. And that's why they see Israel as one of the major stumbling blocks against their long-term geopolitical ambitions. Because as long as this Jewish state exists there, especially a Jewish state that has nuclear weapons, then Iran's long-term geopolitical ambitions will never be fulfilled. Especially when you have Pakistan and India next door who also have nuclear weapons so pakistan may one day maybe in the next 50 or 100 years reunite with india but iran wants to basically take over the world and israel is a big problem for them and so is india actually and so are the saudis so that is the reason why they are hell bent on destroying israel that is the real reason reason it is not about it's not about religion it's about their long term geopolitical ambitions to rule the world. Soman asks, why are the Afghan forces unable to combat the Taliban in spite of training under NATO forces for more than a decade? Is it due to a lack of willpower, lack of numbers or quality of weapons? Okay, let me give you a different example. The Indians have a very long military tradition for thousands of years. India had the the six the, the the Rajputs the Jats, and they almost defeated the British in 1857. So what did the British do? They engineered they they almost basically see the, the, India also had the Marathas. So they, these forces, these native indigenous Indian forces, reestablished Hinduism's Swaraj over India by de- defeating the Mughal Empire. Right, and the British saw what is the capability of India and how powerful India is. How how much how good the Indian soldiers are. What is their great? What is their quality? It's the highest quality. So what they did was they starved India so that Indians can't fight. If you can't, if you don't have food, if you're starving, then how will you fight? So it is always about the resources that you have, the logistical. Uh, whether you have the logistics or not, that is what determines the quality of your fight, of, of how well you fight. You know, the old adage is that uh, an army fights on its stomach. So if you don't have uh, supplies, then you can't fight. It It, it uh, is true about supplies of food. It's true about supplies of ammunition and many other things. So the real secret to any fighting forces success is logistics. It is the supply chains. Are they being supplied with enough cash, with enough food? Do they have access to water? Do they have access to the right kind of weaponry? Do they have sufficient ammunition? That is what determines whether an army succeeds or fails you you may be the best soldiers in the world you may have you may be the bravest soldiers in the world but you, if you don't have the right technology if you don't have the resources if you don't have the supplies then you are doomed to failure so the nato people have been training the afghan forces for a decade or whatever but what how much funding do the afghan forces have do they have sufficient weaponry do they have sufficient ammunition is, does there exist a sufficient amount of political willpower to keep fighting the Taliban? These are the questions that will answer why the Afghan forces are unable to combat the Taliban. The Americans have left it open by design, the country to the Taliban. The Taliban now controls more regions of Afghanistan than does the Afghan government. So the Americans knew this was coming. They have been planning this exit exit strategy for many years. Right? So that is why the Afghan forces are unable to combat the Taliban. They don't have enough weaponry. They don't have enough ammunition. They don't have enough funding. And most importantly, the political will is waning now. It's The writing is on the wall. The Taliban is going to take over. But this time, there's going to be a more orderly take by the Taliban because several other big forces are involved in this bigger bigger fish are at play here another question about the taliban taliban is officially neutral in the kashmir issue and they want to have good relations with india and even india wants to build the chabahar port route through afghanistan so what will be the afghan the india afghanistan or taliban relationship in the future should india have official relationship relations with the taliban after the withdrawal of the us troops? See, India's uh, position in Afghanistan has to be dictated by the long-term national interest. In the long term, India wants to regain land access to Afghanistan, which lies through POK, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. India wants a peaceful and stable Afghanistan through which it can open a land route to the rest of the world, especially Europe. Right now, India is cut off from the whole of the world through land. And India would eventually like the Afghans to become well, a friendly nation to the Indians, right? To India. So right now, what's happening is this. See, the, the Taliban is going to take over Afghanistan very soon. The Americans have, de- have declared that they are leaving at the end of August. So by the end of August, there will be not a single American soldier left in Afghanistan. And the Taliban is going to take over most of Afghanistan. This time, there may not be so much chaos because everything is being stage managed by two or three external countries. So the keys to the the Taliban lie in Rawalpindi, which is the headquarters of the Pakistani army. But the keys to Rawalpindi lie in Beijing because the Chinese own the Pakistan army. So essentially, the Taliban, who are a proxy of Pakistan, are actually a proxy of the Chinese. Now, the Chinese have long-term interest in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a means to... See, the Taliban is a means to an end for the Pakistanis, because they want influence in Afghanistan. And Pakistan is a means to an end for the Chinese, because they want long-term influence in Pakistan, in Afghanistan and beyond. The Chinese have superpower ambitions, and they are using these as stepping stones towards reaching that super superpower status. And the Chinese are interested in Afghanistan's resources. There is a great deal of mining to be done in Afghanistan. There is a great deal of copper, for example, and other minerals and resources in Afghanistan. And the Chinese want to exploit all of that. And that's why they want an orderly transition to, to the Taliban power in Afghanistan, and the Taliban will never ever do anything against the Chinese for this reason. So the Chinese are essentially stage managing everything. The Russians are also very much involved in this. And India is cut out of this entire process. Now the Taliban are, have they said they are neutral about Kashmir? I'm not sure. Maybe they are. See, the Taliban also know that if India so desires, India can wipe out the Taliban. India does have the military capability and wherewithal. Th- Afghanistan is a stone throw away from Kashmir. India can very rapidly, if it wants, basically take over POK, rush into Afghanistan. And in a couple of months, if the military objective is clear, it can basically annihilate the Taliban if it, if it wants. India can do it. India has the military capability to do that. So Taliban also know this. And that's why they are not really uh, being so overly and overtly antagonistic towards India. So India needs to right now bide its time. Whatever investments India has made in Afghanistan right now are on the verge of being lost. Fine, there are successes and failures in geopolitics. It's always about the long-term game. So as of today, India is cut out of Afghanistan after the Afghan peace process. The Russians, the Chinese and the Pakistanis are deciding what's happening there. Let it be so. Be patient, build your capabilities, build your strength. And when the time is right, India needs to basically uh, play its role, a major role in Afghanistan. Because Afghanistan needs to be brought back to peace and to stability. It is, it is beneficial for India and it is beneficial for the Afghan pe- people as well. So right now, India doesn't have much of a role to play. India is a bystander. India is basically reduced to watching what's happening there. There is some, I think, some deal, some amount of uh, maybe some uh, back channel communication of some kind. It's always there, so there is uh, there is some communication happening at some levels between India and the Taliban. Most likely, it may not be made public, but any sensible country would do that, and I expect it is being done. So India needs to play the long term game as of now when it comes to Afghanistan and the Taliban. So Akash asks, is woke culture really a thing to consider or is it something we can ignore? Good question, a woke culture is taking over the United States right now and much of the Western world. So what is woke culture? vogue culture is something that has emerged in the vacuum left behind after the fall of christianity so you know in the past in the 1980s when the when the pope would visit any country in europe or in the west there would be hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets waiting to catch a glimpse of the pope today when the pope visits some place there's nobody on the streets so that gives you an indication of the decline of Christianity and the way people are rejecting Christianity in the West. Because now people are, are becoming aware of the true history of Christianity, that it is a, it has played a very major political role in Europe. It has been the real center of power and it has, well, you can read up the history of the popes to understand the real role of Christianity. So Europe and the West have woken up to this. They, they are leaving Christianity in in omas. In now, the thing is that Christianity has been the moral foundation of the West for about a thousand years, of, if not more. So every person needs a moral foundation in their life, a set of moral principles to live by, because it is very difficult to think on your own about what is right, what is wrong. It's people, you know, thinking is hard work. People don't like to think. They like to be told what to do. That's why they look up to leaders and they need moral principles, something that is already ready made for them that they can follow. And because they are now realizing what Christianity truly is and because they are leaving Christianity so mu- in so many numbers, they are left without a moral compass. So they're left without a, a rule book that will guide them in life. And the leftists have jumped into this vacuum by giving them this woke ideology. So woke ideology is about the the moral high ground. It's about doing the right thing, etc. But the right thing is very distorted when it comes to woke culture. It is all about identity politics. It's all about uh, empowering a certain political ideology and that ideology actually is Marxism it is cultural Marxism which takes which takes a myriad number of forms it has a lot of different manifestations and woke culture is the latest manifestation of cultural Marxism it's all about dividing a society among various identities and creating this conflict between the identities and it's all about <clears throat> taking the moral high ground that my uh my ideology is, Morally superior to yours and therefore I can hate you and you need to be marginalized and cancelled and all that. And that is unfortunately now being exported to India. So all these these misguided students who uh, study in all these various universities, JNU and various other universities, especially in the humanities departments, they are all uh, exposed to this new woke religion by these professors who are all Marxist professors, who all uh, follow the Marxist ideology. They're all ideologues. They're all overground workers of the communist cause, these professors. India has allowed them to take over the academic system, especially the humanities. And that's why this is now being exported to India. And they are again dividing India under in, in various classes. It's all about destroying Hinduism. So you don't say Hinduism, you say Brahmanism in order to attack Hinduism, because the Brahmin class was the basically the the people who had the knowledge, who were in charge of preserving India's knowledge. So that is being attacked so that India's knowledge disappears. And therefore you can undermine the foundations of Hinduism and India's ancient culture. And then they create this class divide between Dalits and various other people, etc. Even this term Dalit is a very new term. It's all thanks to Mr. Gandhi. And later it was taken up by the Marxists. So this woke ideology, this woke culture, is now being exported into India. It is becoming a nuisance. So that's where we are. We need to take it very seriously. We cannot ignore it. And the the way to tackle it properly is to reform the academic system. Basically, (laughs) what do I say? The academic system needs to be uh, decontaminated of its Marxist leanings, which is throughout it Even the IITs are full of these humanities departments, which I've spoken about earlier. So it's all about basically uh, decontaminating and reforming India's academic system. Until that is done, it's going to become a bigger and bigger problem in India, this woke culture. Saurabh Kumar asks, there are high speculations that China will try and invade and capture Taiwan soon. Given that NATO might help Taiwan, a heavy amount of military involvement from China will be required on the Eastern end. Do you think that will be the right time for India to act on taking back POK and Aksai Chin? Also recently you mentioned that Balochistan might become part of India very soon enough. What did you mean by this? Can you please elaborate about this? See, I have said this in the past, I will say it again. India needs to stop thinking about POK and Aksai Chin. India needs to think bigger. India needs to, organizational ambitions. India needs to think that needs to have the ambition of becoming a superpower in the next 20 years. If it, India has that ambition, then POK and accession will come back to India automatically. Pakistan also will eventually come back to India, and so will Afghanistan. Okay, in due time, not in the next five months or five years, but in due time, on a geopolitical timescale of decades. We need to be stop being impatient. We need to stop thinking so small that we want POK okay, this little piece of land back, and in this little piece of land back. We need to think much bigger than this, and so then eventually Balochistan everything will come back in due time. Now about China's invasion, impending invasion of Taiwan. Let's take a look at the map. So like always, this here is the island of Taiwan. China regards Taiwan as, an, as a renegade province. And China is building up its logistics and capabilities and naval strength, etc., military strength, missile strength, everything. Diplomatic strength, geopolitical strength, its comprehensive national power with the aim of sooner or later reintegrating Taiwan with China by military force. So I think this will definitely happen in this decade. They will do it when they judge that the time is right by their calculations, which is basically when the US is no longer strong enough to stop such a thing from happening. So they will do it then. So what should India's response be? That is the main question. Here is what India's response should be. The day China launches an invasion of Taiwan, India should immediately act and secure Nepal and Bhutan, immediately. That is what India should do, which means that Indian army should be in Nepal and it should be be guarding the northern border of Nepal with Tibet. And the same goes with Bhutan. The moment China launches an invasion of Taiwan, India needs to put extensive military boots on the ground in Nepal and Bhutan to safeguard the integrity of these two regions, it is Essential India does that. So that will be an apt response for China. And it will be a reintegration of these two territories with India. Because Bhutan has China, the the Chinese have their eyes on Bhutan. They are already nibbling away at Bhutanese territory. And Nepal, the Chinese look at it as a buffer state. If in the future they intend to invade some part of India, they may very well come through Nepal. Because that is, they think that India will least expect that so that could be part of their calculations any sane general would would basically do that would consider that as part of their war games so if or rather when taiwan is invaded by china india needs to immediately secure the territories of nepal and bhutan with its army that's what needs to happen and when it comes to balochistan pok aksai chin all that will come back in due time but india needs to start acting like a major power. India needs to start investing significantly in bolstering the technological prowess and capabilities of the army and in it needs to invest greatly in a much more expanded air force and a much more expanded navy. So all this needs to happen right now. Sovik asks, Will there be any changes in the map of Asia in the next 50 years, like the formation of new countries or the annexation of any country? Definitely 100%, the map of Asia is going to change in the next decade, two decades, definitely the next five decades. So what is going to happen? There are two possibilities, two scenarios that we can consider. The first scenario is that China displaces the United States as the global superpower. If that happens, my friends, if China is allowed to succeed in this ambition, then the map of Asia will change. In which way, the Chinese will definitely engineer the disintegration of India. India will become fragmented. Bengal will become part of Bangladesh. Uh, Kashmir may become part of Pakistan and Tamil Nadu, Southern states, secede. This is what the Chinese have been writing about for many decades. They have been writing, this, writing about this in Chinese language publications, military publications for decades. So this is what they have been planning. This is part of their long-term agenda and this is their ambition. So if the Chinese are allowed to ascend to global superpower status, this is unfortunately what will happen. On the other hand, if India succeeds in emerging as a global power on its in its own right, if India can find the leadership from within, that will take it to a global power status, which is definitely possible in the next 20 years. If that happens, then in the next 50 years, Nepal will be part of India, Tibet will be free, China will be broken up, Pakistan will basically exist as independent Balochistan, Sindh, Punjab, Parts of Pakistan will be reintegrated with Pakistan, with Afghanistan where they belong. Afghanistan will be stable and secure and peaceful. And eventually, maybe within 100 years, the Indian subcontinent may be united under one political dispensation. So these are two scenarios. One is India is fragmented and China takes over the world. Secondly, China is fragmented, Tibet is free, and India is able to reintegrate various parts of the subcontinent and establish peace in at least this region of the world. So these are two possible scenarios with what's going to happen. It all depends solely on the actions that the Indian leadership takes in the next year, in the next five years, next 10 years, and next 20 years. It all rests in the hands of India's leadership and in the hands of the Indian people. It all depends on whom they elect as India's leaders. So, the next two decades are critical, pivotal for the, for the future of Asia. Vaibhav asks whether the COD can really do something on the ground level, or is it only for the time when things get accelerated from China? Will it be able to influence expanding trade, etc., military exercises? Okay, so you're asking about the relevance of the Quad, the so-called Quad. What is the Quad and what is its relevance in the world today? Is it a military alliance? Is it an economic alliance? What exactly is the Quad? So the Quad is none of those things. (laughs) The Quad is essentially a loose-knit network of four like-minded partners who are aiming at a broader purpose. The Quad is basically a... A loose alliance of India, the United States, Japan, and Australia. So this is a loose knit network. It is not a, a, a formal military alliance. And there is a broader, larger purpose. The broader purpose is to shape the global order during this age of transition, this pivotal decade, the 2020s, because the world is evolving very rapidly. This is an age of transition from a unipolar world to a multipolar world, or maybe again to a unipolar world if the Chinese take over. So the uniting principles of the Quad are democracy, the rules-based order, and a free, open, and inclusive Indo-Pacific region. So these are the uniting principles of the Quad. So recently, we had a summit in March, I think, and there were three significant outcomes. Firstly, there was going to be this Cooperation on COVID-19 vaccine production. And India will be the hub of this COVID-19 vaccine production. Secondly, there will be cooperation on emerging technologies, new technologies. And thirdly, there will be cooperation on mitigating climate change. So this third uh, mitigating climate change uh, resolution is basically about telling the world that we are not an end China alliance. We have a broader agenda. But we do have naval exercises in the quad. So basically, uh, we recently had the Malabar exercise, exercise in which even the Australians were invited for the first time. Usually it is India, Japan, Japan, and the US. So Australia is now getting involved in this. And there is the possibility of a quad plus kind of structure in which Canada will get involved, France, New Zealand, UK may also get involved. So it is a loose-knit ad- alliance. The agenda is to... Uh, implement a restructuring of the global supply chains. India will be a vaccine hub. There will be cooperation in technology and biotechnology and in various strategically significant areas. And this alliance hopes to use the network effect and to enlist the support and cooperation of other states in maintaining a global rule-based order. And the overall objective is to basically uh, prevent China from ascending to superpower status. That is definitely there, yes. So the Quad is a core group of four countries that seeks to enlist the support and cooperation of various other countries in military as well as non-military actions without focusing on membership. So you don't have to become a member of the Quad. You can be a Quad plus member, or you don't even have to be associated with the Quad by name, and you can still engage in cooperation. So we are building an alliance of like-minded nations to preserve what is the current global order and to prevent China from hijacking and taking over the world. So that is what the Quad is. It is by no means a military alliance. There is a military element, especially a naval element. So it will all depend on what is going to be the future, what uh, scenarios will emerge in the next coming years, within this decade. And that will, in the long term, shape the form and direction that the Quad takes. Vishal asks, there is an organization of Islamic cooperation, the OIC, with 57 countries uh, as its members. So why don't other countries form a similar organization on religious lines? India can use its Buddhist history as leverage, well, that's a very good question. Lots of people have made this suggestion, and this can never happen as long as India is a secular state that rejects its Hindu, Buddhist, and Dharmic heritage. So, if you look at the Indian Constitution, it rejects; it doesn't make a single mention of India's culture and civilization. Uh, it has clauses that are is, that are that are explicitly Hindu phobic. And the Indian laws are all Hindu-phobic, many of them. The Indian government policies are Hindu-phobic. Only Hindu temples are controlled and their wealth is stolen. Other religions can do whatever they want with their religious structures and and places of worship. So India is an explicitly Hindu-phobic nation. India is the world's most Hindu-phobic nation, actually. So as long as India has this official constitution and laws and, and government policy that is So anti-Hindu and anti-Dharmic, how can India ever (laughs) enter into any such alliance with other Dharmic nations when India is an anti-Dharmic nation, right? So as long as India's constitution stays in force, as long as India remains this secular socialist country, as long as the Indian government continues with its its anti-Hindu policies, India can never ever be... Part of such an alliance. If you look at Thailand, if you look at other countries, they are way more proud of their Indian heritage, of their Hindu-Buddhist heritage than India ever is. If you look at any Olympic Games, you have a march past in the beginning, where every uh, contingent wears the national dress, their own national dress, and, and showcases their culture. If you look at Thailand, if you look at the various Southeast Asian countries, you will show them displaying their Hindu and Buddhist heritage very proudly, but if you see the Indian contingent, they will be downplaying their Indian heritage, right? So that is what you see. India is becoming deracinated. India is India has lost its its identity, its own identity. India has lost. Indians are confused, and the Indian government is explicitly explicitly anti-Hindu and anti-Indian culture. So as long as this scenario continues, India there is no this this uh, proposed dharmic coalition can never happen which is a shame because india india can be a cultural superpower and india can can bring a lot of nations together on the strength of its uh, cultural and religious heritage so it is something that one hopes will change soon okay raghav asks <clears throat> What are the pillars of soft power and what and how can India become one? What you mean is, how can India become a soft power uh, superpower or something? So I always keep emphasizing the fact that India needs to concentrate on hard power, not soft power, because soft power is pointless without hard power. On the other hand, soft power does have its uses. So what are the pillars of soft power? Soft power is all about culture. It's all about culture. And India has the potential to become a cultural superpower and a tourism superpower on the basis of its culture. India has everything India needs. It has a 10,000 plus year old history. It has the oldest surviving culture in the world, the oldest surviving civilization in the world, the oldest surviving religious traditions in the world, the oldest languages in the world. It has a vibrant, diverse culture. every I mean, it has so much plurality and locality. So many beautiful local manifestations of the overall culture. So India has the potential to become a tourism and cultural superpower overnight if the government of India were to invest in these things. And of course, India will have to uh, re-embrace its dharmic roots for this to happen. So the pillars of soft power are, are simply culture. India needs to, uh, to improve its standards of living. India needs to increase its per capita GDP by increasing its overall GDP. India needs to restructure education and governance and all that. But all the raw ingredients India needs for becoming a cultural superpower are already present in India. It is trivial to utilize this and leverage it. So the, it's very simple. India just needs to re-embrace its culture and flaunt it and leverage it to become a cultural superpower. That's all it takes. It is there for our taking, if our government were to wake up. So that is it for the questions I had selected. Now let me take a few live questions. After removing this question. So Kailash asks with the future death of the Dalai Lama and the election of the next of the next Dalai Lama will that be the initial step towards the possible war between India and China well will there be an election for the next Dalai Lama i think the Dalai Lama has indicated that he would like that to happen if if i heard if i remember correctly so maybe there will not be a reincarnation thing, maybe there'll be an election for the Dalai Lama, in which case you will have two parallel Dalai Lamas, one in India and one in Tibet. So the Chinese will definitely try and pressurize India to not go ahead with this election of the Dalai Lama within the Tibetan community in India. So that could definitely become a point of contention between India and China, whether it leads to a war or not has to be seen. It depends on how powerful China is in the future and how powerful India is in the future. So, it is definitely a potential flashpoint for the future. I clicked on something else and this came up. <laughs> okay, Shashank asks Do you think that we should ever be concerned about the reports being published? by the western think tanks about india on things like freedom of speech etc it is a matter of concern it is basically an attempt to interfere in the internal affairs of india india needs to have a very strong stance against this any publication that indulges in such in such activities needs to be disbarred from entering india basically you have these surveys and all that that are being done within, within india right these journalists, so-called journalists, agenda-driven people, they come to India, they get they take visas, they come to India, they survey Indian people, and then they take the, this data back to wherever they came from and put forth these distorted findings. My question is, why is the Indian government allowing such publications to operate in India? The Chinese do not tolerate any sort of anti-China activity from any Western publication on Chinese soil. If any Western publication publishes anti-China content or news or opinions, that publication is banned from China and there are severe repercussions. So my question is, why doesn't the Indian government have the fortitude to do the same? It is a matter of grave concern. It affects India's... It affects the way India is viewed globally and it affects the the opinions of people within India, especially youngsters who don't know right from wrong because they don't have enough information. So they look upon these BBCs and CNNs and Washington Post, etc., as globally uh, reputable news sources. And then they believe all this about their country. So India, the Indian government needs to have a more proactive and more nationalistic approach towards dealing with these attempts at regime change or at least at uh, interfering in India's internal affairs, definitely. Good question. So if Christianity acted as a barrier towards innovation and freedom, why do you think the Renaissance happened in Europe while the Catholic Church still had a great amount of power? So there is one very important event in Europe that eventually caused a great deal of change. And this event is the formation of the Anglican Church in England. The English King Henry VIII dissociated, he he basically broke off with the Catholic Church. He set up his own church, the Anglican Church, which was a Protestant church and their attitude was very different. They were, they tolerated new information, they tolerated science, they tolerated technology, they, t- they tolerated progress. And it was under the regime of his daughter, uh, Elizabeth, that uh, that England started prospering. Of course, they it, it benefited greatly from the amount of money that started coming in from India. So it is this big change that, that basically propelled England above every other European nation in terms of scientific And technological progress which translated itself into geopolitical progress and therefore other nations in europe had no option but to follow suit now when it comes to this so-called renaissance in europe it was basically all in uh, various italian city-states that were under the patronage of the of the church but they were in some ways independent in some kind or they basically were allowed to do this they also had a great deal of ties with the ottomans and they benefited a great deal great deal from the trade with the ottomans so it is this strange accident of history that led to the renaissance and it is it happened at the time when the power of the catholic church had started declining when the prestige of the catholic church had started declining so it coincides it coincides with that it does coincide with that and it is interesting that the This act of Henry VIII, it basically set in motion a chain of events that has led to what we are in today. The situation that Europe is in in today and the West is in today. That basically Christianity is in terminal decline in the West. And the Catholic Church is being forced to look East. And that's why they are investing billions of dollars every year in converting Indians in large numbers. And the Indian government is tolerating all that. Okay, let's take one more question for today. Something about world history or geopolitics, I hope. What is my opinion on Afghanistan? I just gave my opinion, sir. Okay, this is a good question. After Putin loses control of Russia, what will be the future of Russia? Will it be one state or will it break up into several states? Well, this is hypothetical. Will Mr. Putin lose, lose control of Russia or will he eventually delegate his power to somebody else? Remains to be seen. As of, as of today, he is the uh, he's essentially the emperor of Russia, the Tsar of Russia, by another name, and he is all-powerful in Russia. But in the future, if if Mr. Putin does lose control, if he does relinquish power to somebody else or fall out of power because of some reason, there is a possibility of Russia breaking up. The Chinese will very much want to engineer that. The Chinese have their eyes on Siberia. They have that eyes on reaching various parts of Northern Asia. So yes, Russia and China are not really allies. They are long-term geopolitical adversaries. So currently, Russia is very strong because of Mr. Putin, because of his iron-fisted rule in Russia. As long as it continues, China will treat Russia with a great deal of respect. But in the future, if somebody else comes to power, And if that person is not as strong, then yes, the the Chinese will want to engineer a breakup of Russia. And that is something Mr. Putin must have already calculated because he is very much aware of the very fraught history that China and Russia share. Okay, my friends, that is it for today. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for participating. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Have a good night. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.